Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Reclamation Podcast, where our goal is to help you reclaim good practices for life and leadership in Christ. My name's Tony, and I'm your host. I'm so excited to bring you today's conversation with Bill Yo. Bill is an author and an entrepreneur, and his book, Unvarnished Faith, is an incredible testimony about how God worked in his mission trip to Nicaragua. I loved his heart. I appreciated the way he talks about his family and his servant's heart. He's got an incredible faith, and I think you're going to love his leadership principles. There's so much here for you to unpack. As always, guys, I'm thankful for you being a part of the Reclamation community. Do me a favor, share this episode with a friend, maybe somebody who you know is uh, got a faith that's unvarnished or runs a family business or wants to learn how to live out their faith on an everyday basis. Now, without any further ado, here's my conversation with Bill Yo. So excited to have Bill with me today. Bill, thank you so much for the time. Thanks, Tony. It's my pleasure to be here. I'm very honored. Well, one of the things I like to jump into kind of from the macro perspective is uh, kind of a talk about calling. And I'm curious, how would you describe the calling that God has placed on your life? You've done lots of different things over the years. Uh, of course, a, a lifelong writer and a poet, an author, speaker. How would you describe what God has called you to? Wow, you, you start with an easy one, huh? Um, <laughs> yeah, no, it's a, it's a great question, and, and thank you for for that big opening. Um, you know, I spent 25 years of my adult life, my business, my uh, you know, my career, mostly in the business world, and and in in a very you know secular sense, doing those kind of things, um, but about well, you know, I guess eight years ago by now, I, I had a real um, earthquake in that path, if you will, and it was my mother passing. And, um, you know, for it was sad, of course, losing my mom, you know, that, that mm. inevitable sadness that, that, you know, almost everybody appreciates. Um, but it was also very beautiful. And it was beautiful in the sense that um, you know, there was this beautiful, there was a sunset streaming through this huge window next to her bed. We were all surrounded. She was surrounded by loved ones. I was holding her arm wow. as she passed, but it was also beautiful because I was aware of the moment that her suffering ended and she went to be with God and God physically pushed on my chest in that moment. And, and it was a mm. sense and an emotion and a feeling that I'd never had before. And so with all the overwhelming I had of my mom passing, I had this other sort of overwhelming of just this incredible power of the Holy Spirit. And at the time, I didn't have the words or the act, you know, I didn't have the awareness to know what the heck was going on. But but in, in you know, not too much later with discernment and thinking through this, you know, I kind of realized, wait, it's time for me to, to change what I'm doing. And so within a couple of months, I decided to pull out of a lot of my business activities. And it's a family business working with my siblings. Um, you know, I'm still involved, but not nearly the extent I was. A few months later, decided I'm going to research and write a book. A few months later, joined my first fault, small group. A few months later, you know, uh, my first mission trip. And just it was this gradual calling to, to go to your question of trying to discern more of what God is revealing to me about what are my talents and gifts? What am I doing to deploy them to help other people? How am I using the discretion that I have around my time, talents, and efforts to make the world a better place and to serve God by serving others? And, um, you know, that's kind of the shortest, uh, the, the, the shortest way I can explain about what my calling is and what the last half dozen years have looked like. So, 
I heard you mention the word discernment, and I want to drill down on that just a little bit because I, I think that there are a lot of le- leaders listening who feel called in so many different directions because there's they got a lot of options, mm-hmm. right? Just like you, you got a lot of options. How do you discern God's voice versus the neighbors or the pizza you had yeah. last night or right. anything right. else? Well, particularly the pizza you had because it's it's like, all right, is that is that revelation or is that indigestion? You know, kind of going right, right, right. 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 Um, Amen. But no, but I I talk about this toggle that God reveals, I discern. God reveals, I discern. Mm. And I know, or I, I believe that I missed the vast majority of the revelation that's put before me because because some of it is put in front of me in ways I can understand. Some of it could be a bird landing on the, on the, the balcony outside. Um, yeah. Some of it could be a, 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 a feel in the air, whatever it is. But, but the more that I've found when I've had the choice to do different things, if I can discern on which of these things would, would, would model the life and the teaching and the ministry of Jesus, which of these things would be more consistent with what the Bible is teaching me about how to be a good person if I take that option, I'm finding more time or, or, or literally every time things are kind of working out better. So uh, I, I facilitate a couple of small groups and, and one I run during the summer. This summer, we're, we're running a surrender series. And the whole idea is, mm. is what, what does it mean to surrender to God's will? And there's a lot of leaders and type A people and things like that in this group. And, you know, we've all been taught in our lives that surrender is, is losing. Surrender is weakness. Surrender is acquiescence. Surrender is a, is a, is a form of of an inferior way of being. But the reality is through a, a, a biblical and a Christian lens, surrendering to God's will is the ultimate form of strength and the ultimate form of presence and the ultimate form of, of letting go of control and, and, and being who God created us to be. And so that to me all comes back to that discernment piece about if I'm trying to truly listen, not just to my heart or, or to my ego or to my parent, but listen, or, I mean, just my head, but if I'm trying to listen to my heart and what, God is saying to me and through others to me, then, you know, that that's the path that I'm trying to walk. So That's a beautiful response. And I think it's, I really like the way you ended it. That's a path I'm trying to walk. Cause I think it's, it's definitely more of a spiritual practice mm-hmm. and not mm-hmm. a spiritual, like right. Right. Uh, completely defined spiritual law. Sometimes I think the next step is being illuminated. And I was like, Oh, Nope, that's not it. Like, no, nope. <laughs> right. I just wanted me to be sure. Like, look, take a peek, but that's not where you're heading, pal. Come on back and let's head this way. So, uh, one of the things that I appreciate about your your bio as I was kind of diving into your life is one of the descriptions I see repeatedly is a lifelong writer. Mm-hmm. And uh, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that. I, I found some of your poetry online as well. And I'd love to hear this kind of discipline of writing. I think a lot of leaders are looking for clarity. And I think writing is one of those gifts. When did you realize it was such a transformational practice in your life? And What's it look like on a random Tuesday? Yeah, no, it's a great question. And, and forgive me for getting a little wonky here in terms of the art and the craft of writing. But yeah, I've, I've, always, I've always enjoyed being a communicator, whether it's orally written, you know, visual, whatever. But, but and I think I've known since a young age, since probably high school, that I've enjoyed the craft of writing and, and communicating through writing short form, long form, nonfiction, fiction kind of thing. Um, and again, in this, this long business career I talked about, I always wrote. I wrote all the time. But what was very interesting about it is writing in a business sense is not unlike, you know, if, if a preacher were preparing a sermon. So I'm told I've never been a preacher or given, you know, formally given a, a sermon, if you will. But, you know, it's the whole thing about you tell them what you're going to tell them. 
and then you tell them and then you tell them what you told them. So it's right. about repetition. It's about everything else. And, and the first draft of my first book, I kind of wrote each chapter that way. And my editor said, why are you giving away all the all the punchlines and all the climaxes right in the introduction? And this light switched for me, this light switched to the fact of, wait a minute, you know, the best form of writing is, is storytelling, you know, and, and storytelling mm. is the oldest form of, of, of written communication. And it's the best form of sales. It's the best form of influence. It's the best way to have people empathize and connect with your message is, is telling great stories with interesting, complex characters with, with, with strengths and flaws and everything else. And so while both of the books that I've written have been nonfiction, it still has to do with plot. It has to do with character development. It has to do with interactions. It has to do with surprises. And I just enjoy that journey. And, and I, I try to write books that I would want to read. Um, you know, and I talk about, you know, you mentioned a lot of leaders out there. You know, my, in, in, in one way, for me, the most simple definition of a good leader is somebody who has followers. So similarly, yeah. the most simple definition of a good writer is somebody who has readers. And so I've tried to write my stuff in very uh, relatable ways, ways where people can maybe they can't connect with my professional walk or other things, but they can connect with some of the hardships in my life or some of the insecurities I have. And and I've really just decided with my writing, too, that the more candor I can put into my writing and even though some of that stuff is, is pretty, you know, kimono wide open type stuff, then the more I'm going to give other people the opportunity to step into more authentic versions of themselves. So they see somebody else, you know, out there literally putting out there in the public domain you know, candid, you know, unvarnished, to use my term, unvarnished versions of ourself, maybe that'll help somebody else on their journey do the same kind of thing. And do you have a daily practice or is it you know, one of those things it, you it, just write with? A, it's a interesting. So when, when I'm in the process of writing a book, it's very much a daily practice. It's, it's typically Monday to Friday, wake up in the morning, do my coffee, do my exercise, all those kind of things, maybe a bite to eat. Um, Although I'm intermittent fasting now, I'm on that trend, so that's different. But no, then I, I go into my office. It's a it's a closed, secluded space. Um, now my my pugs are 14 years old, so they've been with me pretty much every writing day. But they they sleep and they're great listeners. They don't give me a lot of negative feedback when I talk to them. Um, <laughs> but the the adage with with writing long form is a thousand words a day. That's what most most yeah. writers and most sort of trainings will tell you is you really want to try and get a thousand words a day. And so if you're going to write a, you know, the book I just put out is 62,000 words, you know, that's a, so that would be 62 writing days. And, um, you know, so you kind of do the math there, but inevitably books are usually manuscripts are longer, you pair them back. Um, but at some point when you're getting near that, the words start to get jumbled, things start to, you know, go sort of sideways a little bit. And then I know, okay, I'm done doing my quality writing for the day. Let me go into further research. Let me go into editing what I did yesterday, something on those lines. But then the last thing I'll mention, too, because you mentioned poetry, is for me, when I'm writing nonfiction, it, it's a lot of right brain creative, but it's also a lot of left brain around around what's the research, what's the history, what's what's how am I staying true to the actual story? So that's a morning regimented practice for me. I found more times than not when I'm writing fiction and when I'm writing poetry, I don't know when it's going to come to me. And a lot of times it, it might come in the evening, it might come at unexpected times. And I've learned for the most part in my my wife, Kelly, has learned for the most part when, when that sort of inspiration or maybe it's revelation strikes, mm. I, I have to go off, even if I can only just get on my tablet, if not on my computer. And, and there's something there that I want to get out. And, and so some of the some of my favorite poems I've written, I've written in, you know, 20, 30 minutes at 10 o'clock at night when I wasn't even expecting to be writing, but it just hit me at the time. So I am curious, your your first book called Our Way, the, the life story of Spike Yo, you know, um, this is a 
a nonfiction book and you're talking about your family, you work with your family. Um, I, I didn't see a whole bunch of other members in your family as, as being a writer mm -hmm. from what I, now maybe I'm wrong about that. That was just research that I was looking on the internet. What does, uh, what did tell the story of Spike do to your family and what's it like to be, um, the, the quote unquote writer of right. the family. Right. Well, no. And, and I think you're right on that, that, you know, we, we each have not just my family, but everybody in creation has unique talents and gifts. And, and so maybe I was, I was gifted with a writing, uh, you know, a writing talent that, that, you know, others don't, and they certainly have many, many talents that far surpass, you know, those same uh, skills that I have. But, um, you know, it was really, as I said, kind of your first question of the, of the conversation, you know, it was a calling to say that, you know, our, our father's story and by extension, our business and our family is is a story that needs to be captured and needs to be communicated. And I just felt strongly about that. And I give my family a lot of credit, particularly my dad and my brothers with whom I work, that, you know, they they partnered with me in putting out, we didn't want to put out a puff piece, kind of like, oh, come on, nobody's this good. Like what's really going on? Um, so, you know, my, my father has for the most part lived a, a successful life. So the book is, you know, let's call it 80% positive, 85, but that 15 to 20% of the underbelly of the warts of the real challenges he had as a child of, you know, some of his personality and, and shortcomings, he, things he has, you know, as, as an adult, um, those are what bring the story to life. And so, you know, I, again, as I said, I give my family a lot of credit because we talk about, you know, some real challenges, by the way, challenges like, like divorce, like estranged parent-child relationships, like drug addiction, like alcoholism, like like untimely deaths, um, you know, things, by the way, that every family has, whether, you, yeah. whether you're in a, a socioeconomic level to own a big company like we do or not, every family deals with all these kind of things. And, and as I said, you know, kudos that we were, uh, as, a, as a group, willing to put that story out there. And, and again, as I had said earlier, maybe encourage other people to, to, to look more authentically at their own lives. So how do you know when the right time to share one of those vulnerable moments is right? Like, cause I I've met some people who uh, can be a little bit of an overshare mm -hmm. and I met some people who are a little walled off. Uh, you mentioned the toggle earlier when it comes to discernment, do you have another toggle when it comes to, uh, this story is now safe to safe <laughs> to share or not? Boy, that that's a good one. Um, certainly with, with that first book, not many of the of those sort of shares were about me personally. They were more about my family. Sure. So there was a there was a slight degree of separation. But you know, we we probably had a six month sort of break, if you will, in the writing and the book process while the family was digesting and iterating and and you know doing different things to make sure that we we told the story in an appropriate way that was authentic and 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 honest, but not you know, overly so, if that makes sense. And I think we really, yeah. really did that. Now with, with me in particular, and some of the things in this newer book, you know, I, I had the benefit of, of time, you know, to kind of put something down, erase it, put something down, leave it there for a week, put something down, show it to somebody. And, and um, so I don't know that I necessarily have a kind of toggle or methodology for it. Um, one of the things I do know is, is, for example, I mentioned a small group and I participate in, you know, three different small groups and um, you know, there is a really uh, warm and welcoming, almost kind of not even implied, but just a sense of confidentiality. You know, uh, mm. and, and what I like to say, what I like to say is that, you know, in those kind of forms. And by the way, it's the same thing when I'm in family business circles, when I'm at different conferences or conventions or whatever with other family with other business owning families. 
the, the term I like to use is that stories stay, but lessons leave. So if I hear some story in, in some kind of an intimate or, or private setting that doesn't have full on confidentiality, like certain you know groups may, you know, unless there's a, there's a, an express uh, approval or, or, or allowance to share those stories, those stories stay. But I really encourage people. But what lessons that I take away from that story? You know, and if I took a lesson away from that story, that that's my learning and that's my sharing. And I can share what my lesson is without having to share that so and so, you know, divulge this part about their past or this relationship in their life. I can stay away from that and say, you know, hey, I heard something and here's what I took away from it. So stories stay, lessons leave. Um, I'm random kind of question about your small groups. Mm -hmm. I think a lot of guys especially are looking for community. How, how did you find the small groups? I love to kind of shout out kind of the practical totally. part of like, yeah, this is how we found them. Yeah, no, I, I love actually the first one that I found was one that my dad was participating in, in the retirement community that he, and at the time my mom actually, no, this was after my mom uh, lived out down in Florida. And, and so I started going on Thursday mornings with him and, you know, I was probably in my mid forties and it was him and a bunch of 70, 80 year olds all hanging out, but they were talking about the Lord and talking about their walk and, and talking about if not books of the Bible, books that were certainly written about the faith life. And, and I just found a real sort of sense of community and growth there um, and nourishment. Nourishment is kind of the term I use. So um, had this really cool experience maybe six years ago where, where five of us who all had gone to high school together. In fact, some of us hmm. school since kindergarten. Um, and known each other a really, really long time, all were feeling called to be in fellowship with other believers and other people who were, were all just sort of in our 40s, just starting to examine our walk. And we realized that the five of us at the time were called to be in touch with the other four and not there wasn't like a sixth person somewhere or one who wasn't. And so it was a that that revelation we eventually got and discerned that we should start a group. And, um, and now it's grown to that we, we've added somebody else. And what I joke about is, you know, one of the new guys we've only known like 25 years. Everyone else is, you know, goes 40, <laughs> 45 years. And and we've been together six or seven years now. And we've, we've probably fumbled through, I'm going to say, 25 books of the Bible or 20 books of the Bible. And, we're, and uh, mm. we just finished doing First and Second Samuel, studying the life of David. Now we're in Second Corinthians. Um, and it's just it's just us trying to be better, better men, um, you know, better, better representatives of what Christ taught us and. But then I have another group that's more of a summer group that meets on the weekends. And, and we're doing a series on surrender, like I mentioned earlier. And last week, our subject was anxiety and anxiety's push against our ability to surrender to God's will. And, and so you had a bunch wow. of, you know, for the most part, 50 to 70 year old men talking about anxiety and talking about fear and talking about doubt and talking about defensiveness and, and even control freakness. Being a control freak is, is a form of anxiety, a form of, of you know, not, not living the way you're meant to live. And, and uh, you know, it was a pretty candid sharing of things. And as I said, I think, you know, people respect that space and aren't going to go home tweeting about what so-and-so just said about things. So uh, it, it's really special. And then the last thing I'll say about the small group is all three groups I'm involved with are men's groups. Um, one at my church, one with my longtime friends, and then the summer one. And one of the things I've been really feeling in terms of revelation and calling recently is why just men, you know, and, and why not, you know, there certainly my, my church community has, has co-ed small groups and Bible studies and, and certainly know plenty of them in them and doesn't mean it has to be all couples, but you know, what might that look like otherwise? And, and one of the things I talk about in my book is ways that we 
knowingly, but also ways we unknowingly emphasize gender or overemphasize gender differences. It's clearly, gender differences matter, and 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 that's important. But how are the ways we overemphasize? So that's just kind of a current, you know, uh, rumination going on within me. So. Hey guys, just pausing this conversation with Bill to remind you to check out our brand new website, follow the number two leadcoaching.com. Follow the leadcoaching.com is my brand new coaching and strategic planning services. I am currently working with business leaders all over the US, helping them map out what it means to live in their faith and work. I think this is such an important uh, role for every leader. How do we let our faith be a guiding force in our work and the, the role that we're called to play in the community. So if I can work with you, if you're someone who might want to take the next step in their faith and work and maybe even improve some of the goals that they have on an everyday basis when it comes to their faith and work and faith and work-life balance and family balance and all the things, then I want to work with you. Go to our website, follow the number two leadcoaching.com and let's set up a time to talk. Um, I'm helping business leaders every single day. And I want to help you. Now, let's finish up this conversation with Bill. Let's dive into the book a little bit. One of the things that is uh, what is the catalyst for this book was this, um, this mission trip to Nicaragua. And this journey, your first time mission trip, uh, kind of in my notes, it's like, uh, you went with your brother and some teenagers and like this whole journey kind of what made you say yes to this trip? Yeah, no, it's a Great question and a key part of my calling to go back to how you open the show. Um, so my brother Jeff and his wife Suzanne live live down in the Carolinas, and they started uh, I don't know 15 years ago or 10 years ago a, a Christian food ministry where they they pack meals and churches and schools and different community uh, you know facilities, and then these these meals are shipped to underserved underprivileged communities both domestically and abroad, and and they just this summer eclipsed 25 million meals packed. So just wow. an incredible, incredible accomplishment. Right, right now, they're in the process of trying to fill an order for a million meals to the Ukraine. Um, they certainly sent a lot of meals domestically. But, but Nicaragua is where a majority of their food has been sent over their time. And it's through a relationship they have with another ministry down in the Carolinas that has a connection to a ministry on the ground in, in Nicaragua. And one of the trips that they would run every year is, is for a high school in, in Charlotte. The first uh, week of the new year in January, they would... Basically, kids would go somewhere. You know, you could do Habitat for Humanity. You could do coding. You could do whatever. Well, one of the trips was with Servants with the Heart, with my brother and his wife's ministry to Nicaragua. And he had asked me for a few different years to go. And and my answer was always, you know, geez, thanks, but no. And I felt kind of awkward. But it was the, these austere environments and these, you know, undeveloped parts of the world or underdeveloped parts of the world. And, you know, this God talk and all that kind of stuff was just not anything I was comfortable with. But, you know, in the years since my mom passed and I was gaining more and more comfort with those things, you know, I finally said yes. And, and I can, with hindsight, say the Holy Spirit finally said, you know, dude, get with this and go. And I thought, you know, I was going as a chaperone for these kids, you know, ostensibly I would be sort of in the background and, you know, helping with their safety and everything else. And I had no idea that, that, you know, I would be ministered to not only by these children, but, but by the, the myriad locals that we interacted with. And how much growth I would get out of it, including ultimately leading towards, you know, writing and publishing this book on, on the trip that you talked about. So what did you learn about God on the trip that you didn't know before? Oh, man. Or that maybe you had forgotten. Yeah, no, no, that I didn't know. Um, you know, that 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 first of all, a couple of things. First of all, you know, ministry is a two way street or a multi way street. 
you know, and, mm-hmm. and um, you know, it's, it's clear if, if I'm showing up as a missionary with food, with, with ready to pray over people that, that there's a ministry function going on there. But what I saw back from these people ministered to me and these children ministered to me in every way imaginable. Um, and it was just an awesome, awesome way of how God works through everybody for everybody um, and just how it breaks down. And this gets into sort of my second thing, how, you know, God does not see division. God does not see difference. God, you know, transcends socioeconomic, geographic, cultural language barriers, gender barriers. Um, and, you know, we, we had this amazing uh, incident where we went to a, visit a trash dump. And people in, in this part of Nicaragua literally live in a trash dump because they're able to forage some level of value out of some of the trash and sell it for some way to sustain their families. But it's, it's unimaginable. You know, there's fires all over, mountains of trash. I mean, just acres and acres of this. And we talked to this one woman who lives there. We met her father and we met her children. So she's second of three generations being raised and living in this dump. And you know, we asked her how she felt about that. And she said, and I, we couldn't imagine, literally could not, literally could not imagine. And her answer was, yo estoy contenta. I am happy. And, you know, it was knock us over with a feather time. How can you be saying, you know, I'm happy. And so if you want to know why I'm happy that I woke up this morning, I didn't know how I was going to feed my children. I prayed to God and he sent you with food. So if you want to know how I'm doing today, I'm happy. Well, that to me was God at work. That to me was faith at work. That to me was, was you know, the, this idea of unvarnished faith, which is the title of the book that, you know, we, we, we get so caught up in places like the U.S. and, and, and uh, you know, what, what denomination are you? What church do you go to? What are the different prayers? What are the rites and sacraments and different things you've been through? But at the end of the day, it's if you have a need, you give it up to God and, and, and God in God's time will answer that need. And I saw that in just an amazingly beautiful way that all the material trappings and the doctrinal divides and the judginess and the platitudes and the things that can come with our more developed forms of faith can can shadow. So, You seem like a really passionate guy to me. And one of the things that I would imagine is you go on this transformational trip, you come back, and now all of a sudden everyone in your circle needs to go on this trip. <laughs> uh, maybe I'm off base. Yeah. But yeah. I'm I'm curious how you live in that tension of like, hey, get your butt to a third world country yeah, yeah. and uh, and yet you're OK right. to live where you are. Right. Where, where's the tension in well, all now, that for you? I mean, Tony, that's it's I'm smiling because I literally an hour before we started talking, I got an email from somebody in, in, uh, in my church group saying, hey, you, you mentioned something about you were going to you know do some kind of work like that. What was that? Where is it? How can I do that? And this wasn't getting on a plane for a week and flying 2000 miles away. This was you know, driving 45 minutes to a, a grossly underserved part of our, of our, of Philadelphia and doing ministry there. And, um, and I really, uh, and, and that, that's also opened my eyes. So I say yes, full yes to the overseas mission trip. Now, unfortunately, since the pandemic hit and since the pandemic, there's been a lot of issues with us taking groups back to Nicaragua. I was able to go a few times mm-hmm. before the pandemic came and then, you know, pivoted to Africa at one point to do some, some work there. But, um, but what I found just as pa- well, two things. Number one is just as powerfully, you can do work. You, know, you can have lunch. Like I, I had lunch at my house, <laughs> went and did this mi- mission work, and was back in time for dinner. And I had this amazing experience with these people that are walking a very different walk than I'm walking. But 
They were created with every bit of right to dignity as I was. They're, they're, they're in the image of God every bit as much as I am. And if I have a chance to walk with them and be in relationship with them, even just for a few minutes, you know, that, that can sustain them in ways. And yes, giving them food and giving them clothing and toiletries and other things, that material sustenance is helpful, but that, that, that spiritual sustenance through relationship and through eye contact and through maybe a hug or a prayer, um, you know, that, that it's tough to calculate, you know, how long that can buoy somebody who's, who's struggling. So, um, and then the last thing too is, you know, people of privilege, people of means are, are every bit as much in God's image and, and, and with dignity as others. And a lot of time people of privilege and of means are, are vilified in society. And so, you know, I'm finding part of my calling is how can I walk with other people from developed socioeconomically, you know, sort of positioned ways of life and, and walk with them and minister to them and, and be in relationship with them. And because if you can move the needle with those kind of folks, you know, you can move the needle in society in some exciting ways. So it's not just what we would think about, you know, traditional mission work or ministry to to you know underserved populations. One of the things that I know is common when people take trips like this is um, in the army, we call it survivor's guilt. Right. Mm-hmm. But like uh, mm-hmm. maybe another way to say it is privilege g- guilt. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, you, you spend a week in Nicaragua or even just the afternoon and then you come back and, you know, obviously, you, you know, you very openly have admitted that you've got some privilege and means. And how, how, how does that tension? How do you wrestle with that tension? How do you how do you live with that? How do you recommend to someone else who's like, oh, gosh, it feels so awkward? You know, like if. If you were talking to somebody for the first time who just came back from their trip and now they, they, you know, they hopped in their Tesla to go home, right. um, what, what are you telling them? Yeah, no, I mean, that's where you put your finger right on a real uh, sort of nexus of the emotion and the journey that this puts you on. And, um, you know, for the person who's been, uh, it's wonderful because I almost we don't we can we can connect over it without having to really explain it. And, and an analogy I use there is when we were. You know, our oldest child is 23, but when we were nearing the time when, when his, he was due, good friends of ours had had a baby maybe six months before. And I asked the father, you know, my friend, I said, hey, what's it like? And God bless him. He, he was about to say something. He said, you know what? Call me afterwards. Like, I'm not mm-hmm. going to tell you. Just call me afterwards. And, and that, was, that was just the biggest gift he could have given me. So in some ways, you know, that's more the, the, the thing is it's not as much talking to the people who have been through it, but the people who haven't. I just can't encourage folks enough to try and do something. Again, it doesn't have to be 2,000 miles away for a week. It can just be something short. And what I like to say is that if a, if a picture is worth a 1,000 words, an experience is worth a million. And so mm. if somebody can have that experience of being in this place and, and having that sort of five sensory sense and smell and feel and touch and, you know, and all those things about walking in that way and, and, and just being so – just having God be so present in those exchanges and in those moments, you know, there's, I tried my best in that book to write what it might be like for somebody and encourage him to do that, but there's no substitute for the experience of doing it. And, and from the survivor's guilt perspective, um, you know, I would just say is, is number one, gratitude, you know, just the, the gratitude for what we have. But then secondly, you know, hey, take this as a calling. If you, if you have that feeling, consider that that's the Holy Spirit compelling you to do more than you're already doing. And, and, and don't shun that away. Don't wait for that to disappear. Like sit with that and let that in 
and and know that the more you honor that and and move to that, the more you're surrendering to God's will and living into who you were created to be. One of the things I appreciate about the way that you talk about serving, it's very much a spiritual discipline for you. And one of the things that we say around here a lot is that if you're not dedicated to your disciplines, you'll be destroyed by your distractions. Mm, mm, That's good. And so, you know, I'd love to hear a little bit about what are some of the daily, monthly, yearly practices that you kind of like hang your hat on or like, hey, these are the things that keep me healthy. Uh, what are what's that like for you? Yeah, no, great, great question, and I'll sort of give two different uh, answers to it. Number one is sort of a, from a community or a relationship, a spiritual relationship perspective. I think it was when I was reading Rick Warren, Purpose Driven Life, you know, years ago, where I think he talked about sort of these three three levels of relationship and community. You know, number one and most importantly is what's your your personal relationship with God, your personal relationship with, with Jesus, and and every one of ours is different. And then secondly, sort of what what sort of smaller groups are you in? You know, and that would be this sort of small group type thing or, or mission trip groups, whatever. But then there's like, what's your broader church community? And maybe it's your local mm-hmm. church. Maybe it's a, you know, so how do you have these different ways of relating? And then how that's sort of intersected by the practices. Um, you know, certainly we talk a lot about prayer and, and you know, in my in my sort of journey, prayer used to be this almost like Norman Rockwellian thing of, you know, on my knees, on my bed at night with the candlelight and just this very sort of serene, like, okay, you know, now we're going to get into it. And and prayers evolved now to, you know, sitting in a red light and, and, you know, saying, let me let me throw something out for that woman who looks like she's struggling or for this thing that I'm thinking about or, you know, where am I going in my different relationships? So, so praying all the time now, I think, has been a real practice and development. Being in small group, you know, we one of my friends in, in my Friday group refers to it as we're, we're here spiritual weightlifting. You know, you have the other six mornings or five mornings every week. You can do your physical weightlifting, but this is spiritual weightlifting that we're doing now. So, um, you know, for example, with with one of the groups that I run, somebody I, I encourage somebody different to end every week with the closes out in a prayer after we offer intentions. Mm. And some of the guys are really uncomfortable to do it, but. I've never heard one who didn't channel the Holy Spirit and say something thoughtful and helpful to, to close us out. And guess what? That that they've now done some weightlifting exercise they've never done before, and so they're stronger as a result of it. So, um, and I've had the chance now to start to go on some different retreats. You know, maybe annual retreats to a, a local faith center or a you know whatever it might be, and you know just be in community with other believers for you know a couple of days very immersively. And those are very powerful experiences. So, but, but it's, again, it's different, I'd say for, for everybody. So. That's, uh, that's good. I like the idea of the experiences and it, that goes back to what you said earlier too, about experience being worth a million years, a million words. A million yeah. words. Yeah. yeah. So that's, that's, uh, I think that's very wise. I, I am kind of curious as this book gets out into the world, uh, you know, what is your prayer around it. Like when you pray for the person who's going to read it, what do you pray yeah, for? No, no, that's great. Um, and, um, you know, my, my prayer is that, and again, whether it's one person or a thousand people or 10 people or whatever, that, that they read the book and, and the book ultimately is about the power of love and the centrality of relationships in our lives. I mean, that's really, if there's one takeaway, sure. it's not about a walk with Christ. It's not about a commitment to it. It's about recognizing love and, and embracing relationships and investing in relationships and being the best, most authentic version of yourself. You can be channeling love and, and nurturing relationships. And so, 
if somebody who reads it, even just sort of a one degree or one click move better in some community or some relationship they have, um, you know, that to me would be a huge win and make it all worthwhile. So, so the book is broken into six different parts and each part talks about a tenet that for me fuels love and relationships and fuels this idea of unvarnished faith. So I talk about character and dignity and talents. And I talk about serenity, failure and gratitude. And so I've heard from different people, whether it's my children, people I'm in gospel reflection with, podcast hosts, you know, people at different things, you know, like, and I'll say, like, which one of them resonated most with you and, and, and why and where does that come from? And, and you know, just trying to, to, empath- to, to, to show up for empathy with people so that they can see some part of their life that could be more intentional or improved as a result mm-hmm. of it. So that, 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 and, and that doesn't mean more people on an overseas mission trip, more people dealing with food insecurity, more people going to church, more people, you know, it's, it can be anything for everybody. It's what, as long as they're doing what they have been individually created and, and intended to do, then that's, that's the win. That's awesome. I have one more question for you, but before I ask it, I know that, my podcast family is going to want to connect with you on the interwebs. Mm-hmm. Where is the best place to learn all things Bill and so that they can pick up their copy of Unvarnished Faith? Yeah, no, that'd be great. We made it real easy. It's it's unvarnishedfaith.com. So just one word, unvarnishedfaith.com is, is, uh, is our website, and that's where you can learn all about the book, and you can click over to Amazon to buy it. Uh, it, it, it became a number one bestseller on Amazon the first week it was out, and we're just super proud of that. And um but you can you can learn there about places I'm speaking and and um, you know different ways to connect. Uh, you know I'm on I'm on Facebook. I'm on Instagram. Author Bill Yo. Uh, that's uh, Y O H is the last name. So would love to interact in any of those ways and and love connecting with people. So thank you for that that opportunity to plug that. Okay, the last question I want to ask you. It's an advice question. I ask you to go back in time and give yourself one piece of advice. Except I get to name the season of life that you're in. Okay. All right. So I want to take you back to the end of your very first day officially working at the family business. Okay. Right. If you could go back to that younger version of yourself, sit knee to knee with him, look him in the eyes, hold his hands, and tell him one thing about the life he's about to live. What's the one piece mm. of advice you've given him? Wow. That, uh, you, you start it with a, with a big one and end it with a big one. So... I had to go back and sit. I like that idea. I like the visual sitting knee to knee with that, that version of myself. And so we're going back to the, the mid nineties now. Um, you know, if I reflect on my walk and my journey since then, I would, it would be something in the vein of continue to figure out who you are and be comfortable in your skin. Mm. Um, you know, Try not to overly chameleon towards what you think others may want you to be. Try not to dwell on the past. Try not to be anxious about the future. If, you, if I can be present about who I am being right now with the people in front of me, with the situation in front of me, and, and in whatever age-appropriate ways, whether it's my 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, try and live into who, who that, you know, if it will, maybe not best version, but a better version of myself um, that would be excellent. When I think about sort of the less, the less pleasant reflecting seasons of my life, it's where I've gotten away from that person I was created to be and that, that, that image bearer that, that I have the, the, the opportunity to be. So 
Yeah, it'd be something around there just to, to try and discern, like we started, discern who, who I'm meant to be and live into that as much as I can. All right, bonus question. Uh, are you currently working on your next book? <laughs> you know, uh, I'm working on it up here. I'm not working it on here yet. So, uh, <laughs> well, well, but there, there's two projects. So, so one is one would be a, a, another nonfiction, but it's going to take a number of years. And, and uh, the, the working title of it would be The Burrow of Abraham. So there's mm. a, because uh, as we know, you know, we talk so much about the Judeo Christian tradition, but but Jews, Christians, and Muslims all cite Abraham as their father. So there's a, where we live in Pennsylvania, there's a, a, a community where there's a, a mosque which shares a property line with a synagogue and across the street is a church. And they're in wonderful community. So this borough of Abraham, they're in this wonderful wow. community with each other. In fact, they all worship on different days. They share parking lots. They've co-officiated weddings and all that. But the idea would be, how do we compare that, that, homogeneity, that, that relationship, that, that quality and authenticity with what we see in many other parts of the world, including the Middle East and the Holy Land and some of those things. So, so that would be one. But the other one, which would be very fun, is I'd love to try my hand at long-form fiction. And what I've talked about is there's nobody better that I or my family knows of predicting plots of shows and books than my wife, Kelly. And so if the family's watching a movie and she'll start to say something, they'll like, no, 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 mom, nope, don't, no, don't, we're not where you are yet. So I'd love to partner with her and write a story that she would not be able to predict the, the conclusion of. So that's, Fascinating. that's a really wide lane. And I don't know what that would I be, love but, that. Um, she and I operate a business and together, I, so I think we can work together. Um, sure. But, you know, that would be the one, one that Kelly couldn't predict. So, Bill, I've been so blessed by our time today. Thank you so much for your generosity, for your commitment to the gospel and uh, to helping spread the kingdom message of of love despite cultural tensions and differences. So thank you for the time. Thank you, Tony. I'm grateful. I told you guys what a great conversation with Bill. I love the way he talked about his prayer life, his intentional community, his small group, his scripture. I just think that there are so many nuggets that we can all pull from. And I'm thankful for you for staying all the way to the end of the podcast. Um, Without guys and gals like you, this would not be possible. So again, do me a favor, share this episode with a friend, maybe somebody who you know needs to get into a community a a little bit more and tell them that you heard them here on the Reclamation Podcast. Those kind of referrals continue to help grow this platform and, and give more and more opportunities for God to work through this medium. As always, guys, I'm thankful for you. And remember, if you want to follow Jesus, you must be willing to move.